Welcome to Something for the Turbo, the new weekly podcast brought to you by Unfound, the global platform for the travel-loving cyclist. Welcome to another episode of Something for the Turbo. Thank you very much for listening and keep spreading the word. We really appreciate your support. Today's guest was described to me by a former British champion and Tour de France stage winner as being cycling's man of the moment, and I don't think we could describe them any better ourselves. We're delighted to be joined by Dan Bingham today. Dan is the founder of trade team Who What Bike and the aero accessory company What Shop. He's one of the fastest pursuit and team pursuiters in the world. He was due to be going to, with his team to Bolivia this year to take on a number of world records at altitude. He is a disruptive thinker, utilizing his engineering background to rethink the art of time trialing with changes that have spread throughout the cycling world. He consults with some of the biggest teams, including the Danish Pursuit Team, Canyon Scram, Jumbo Visma, working with the likes of Walt Van Aert. And if that isn't enough, we've also got YouTube sensation, engineer and self-confessed aero geek Alex Thomas joining us. He is the founder and host of the YouTube channel Peak Talk, so check that out. We discuss absolutely loads today, some of it controversial, a lot of it very entertaining, and I think you'll really, really enjoy it. So without further ado, let me bring you Dan and Alex. Dan, Alex, thanks for joining us. Dan, how are you getting on? You well? Yeah, doing real good. Uh, just out in Copenhagen at the moment, actually. Spend the month out in Denmark with work and riding and racing. So, yeah, doing really good. Yeah, I saw, actually. You've done a bit of racing. You're back racing again. How did that go? Uh, reasonably well. It was, well, the literal translation was Mountain Championship, which uh, does not lend itself to my strength. But it's good fun. I was seventh overall, and I was only about, I think it was about eight seconds off the podium or something like that. So it's yeah, good good start, having not raced in, I think, about 10 months, actually, on the road. I think it was Harrogate, really? the world champs last time, which is mad to think back that I've not pulled the TT bike out and had a go on it since then, or had a race on it since then. In the wet, I remember. Yeah, I was there watching. And uh, good to pin the number back on again. Yeah, exactly that. Just going through the motions and... Yeah, just seeing what the legs say. I've done, I mean, get pretty much every cyclist has done a, a whole host of training since lockdown. So uh, it's just good to really check the form and uh, empty the tank, as it were. Excellent. Well, look, we've got loads to catch up on today. And I've also got um, Alex who's joined us. Alex runs the YouTube channel Peak Talk. He's a fellow engineer, so we can get sort of delve into some of the aero stuff further down. But why don't we kick things off by you giving us a little bit of an overview in terms of who bought bike and before we get to what's going on at the moment just the journey and we'll obviously post in the show notes to the film that you made the pursuit which i absolutely love by the way superb film beautifully shot by um james paul james paul that was it yeah i just i did jot his name down fantastic watch so i recommend anyone who's listening to this who hasn't seen that take an hour out and watch it it's a brilliant film i try to watch it every week do you <laughs> no i think uh johnny legitimately does use it as like a pre-race motivation thing in the, the days before um i do watch it i say fairly often maybe every yeah. couple of months or so yeah it comes up in conversation you know why not or it's, it's a good good one for turbos when you really need a bit of motivation uh, it's nice to go back and know when you've succeeded and all the hard work that went into it just to kind of motivate you through those sessions are a bit tough yeah um, we're good yeah so given that you when you arrived at uni rugby was your first sport it's become kind of your living with the lions equivalent <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i never fell in love with rugby properly i just I enjoyed it because that's what my mates are doing back at, at sick form but yeah through university it kind of all transitioned towards cycling or well, first triathlon the guy jack lawler anderson who uh, was an engineer as well, actually. So you might know him, Alex. I don't know if he was... I think he was a year above, so you might have come across him uh, back at Brooks. But um, The name does ring a bell. He, he lent me a TT bike. I uh, went to the British Uni Super Sprint Tri-Champs, and uh, that kicked off my endurance racing career, and I won that. And 
one thing led to another and before you know it um you sucked in the running and the site and the swimming and just gone down the cycling route which went pretty well off the bat and i was only two seasons in when i decided to have a go at the track as it were and um i think as an engineer and you've probably seen it as well that track just lends itself to maths and physics and just being a a nerd yeah <laughs> controlling all the variables yeah, yeah you just can't get away from from the numbers in it and i think it just it was right up my street from the gate from the get-go you can just be so controlled and it's it's nice to be able to apply what you learn at university to to your interest in your sport so yeah I had a go uh literally dragged a few mates in at the time i was i was riding for planet x and all size this was late 2016 yeah. so charlie tanfield was was riding for the same team and we said let's have a go at the individual pursuit at nationals the following january so we're sort of halfway to a team pursuit team and i managed to convince johnny whale on the premise that he would uh, only do a long-term eject and then uh I had a go actually and Tipper sort of said right come on mate don't worry you do the do a long turn eject you won't have to finish uh he said no straight off the bat which is not ideal you kind of do need four riders uh and I hounded him for about two weeks straight and he was I think he was over in China at the time racing tour of Kwanzai Lake or something like that and yeah he changed his mind in the end uh and then got to the first training session and realized I'd sold the sold Johnny on the exact same premise and that he was probably the one that had to get around but Four weeks later, we rocked up at Nationals. Uh, myself and Charlie took one-two in the individual pursuit. I won the kilo. Um, we qualified fastest in the team pursuit in the final against the senior GB Senior Academy, and we beat them and broke the competition record. And that was kind of, I guess, how it all, all started, really. Um, Start of the fairy tale. And it, was it then that you got onto the British Cycling Radar? Yeah, I think... Maybe not even then. It was maybe another six months, eight months. So we we left it on the, the back burner really for a couple of months, and and the road season started, and obviously you get stuck into that because at the time it was just a. I mean, track's always kind of that thing you do in the winter. It, no one treats it as a their main sport. It's it's like a supplementary thing to being a road cyclist. So we went on on that path, and then thought actually, why don't we ever go at, at stepping up? Why don't we try these World Cups and, and see what we can do? We. Uh, asked a few questions sent a few emails uh, got got one back from UCI saying you've missed the deadline by whatever it was two months three months we'll extend it for you you've got two weeks if you can get £5,000 to us by then then you're in and it's like well we just left uni wow. we're in your everyone's in overdraft credit cards everything else yeah. where, where do you find that kind of money from so we were super lucky in, in finding some good support mostly from around around Derby with the Karen Green Foundation were the, the main ones straight off the bat uh, and then Bowman Kirkland stepped in and helped a huge amount throughout the season to really keep us going so we managed off what was I think in grand total we had about £16,000 with Karen Green Foundation Bowman Kirkland and a little bit of crowdfunding and we did I think it was four internationals and three domestic races off that for the whole team including all of our oh, yeah. equipment and travel so yeah we, we really crammed it in and yeah basically off the back of our first few World Cups GB started showing an interest that or who these guys we've never really seen before suddenly challenging for medals at, at world Champ- at world cups so uh yeah that led to down the route of myself and charlie trialing with them through to world champs in, in 2018 uh which was probably a low point actually in my track cycling career i'd say for a number of reasons and then on into the commonwealth games which really cemented my opinion that i didn't want to be in that system that I mean, people obviously have different experiences within within British cycling and, and how they can perform or not perform and, and why they're in cycling. And for me personally, as I said before, it's all about the nerdiness, the mass, the, the ability to control your own destiny and just apply some, some good old-fashioned Excel spreadsheets, really, and then uh, see where you perform. Would, would you say that you're, you're a disruptive thinker, right? Did you, that didn't really fit into their 
their model is that the sort of key clash uh yeah that's probably one part of it i think just yeah asking a lot of questions really there's a lot of people in there who yeah really intelligent and have been there for a while but it becomes a bit of an echo chamber where the same people talking about the same thing you don't really get fresh ideas and you don't get left field approaches to to the problem trying to do new things and and try new stuff so when i came in and was like oh this is really cool and in some ways a lot of what i imagined but it's likely to be like but you aren't doing this or you aren't doing that or you haven't thought about this you haven't thought about that and I guess they took it as an affront to them and didn't embrace it they they pushed back and defensive yeah basically that and yeah um, yeah which wasn't an enjoyable thing to be honest because I was hopeful that they would engage with that and I thought well this could be great we could bring all these cool things that we've been working on and all these great ideas and they're going pretty well and it could really spark something great and actually it went the other way and they said no we're not interested stop asking questions or we'll leave pretty much I literally got told that I can't be an engineer and a rider we've got a pit well I'm one the other wow yeah. wow okay yeah and uh, we'll, we'll come on to that relationship later because I think it's probably just blossomed from there given the work you've been doing in the last nine or, nine or ten months yeah uh, so I mean off the back of all that I, I went back and decided I wanted to push on with my own stuff within what was then Team KGF and found a lot more support and sponsorship and who came on board as title sponsor alongside Wattbike and that just yeah. opened so many doors with so many people and we had Boardman came on board so we had like Boardman Centre so we had basically full access to their winter and all their physiology their biomechanical labs with, with Wattbike and, and Rich Baker there he connected the dots with so many people that just meant suddenly we had a lot of bright ideas really coming in and people offering help and assistance and equipment and then obviously financial support that is the, the lifeblood of getting you to races as much as we're not about the money you still need something to, to pay to to get your, your hotels your Airbnbs your flights all that kind of stuff it's not cheap when you're trying to fly basically five or six cyclists and staff around the world so um, yeah it, it went from strength to strength and we had a pretty awesome season as, as who bought bike 2018-19 and went on to, to this year it was our second year as who bought bike with a bit of I guess a bit of change in a way we'd had Ashton in last year he was on and off coming back because he was still trying to qualify for the Olympics we had Kyle Gordon and, and Will Perrick join us as well so Will was Derby based and kind of growing quite quickly so we were pretty interested to see how he could do and Kyle had been out to the Commonwealth Games to Scotland and shown some pretty good potential too so we kind of grew from what was I guess originally four guys and then Charlie moved on and Harry joined then Harry moved on and Ashley joined and then Kyle and Will are in so some, yeah oh and John of course so yeah we're, we're like seven riders at one point which is a whole lot bigger than we ever thought and yeah we achieved some pretty cool stuff this year in some ways probably not as much as we wanted to but the level just absolutely stepped up we, we were riding 352 and 353s and not getting in for a medal ride which was uh, wow. yeah disappointing yeah yeah, yeah. and then was it last summer the announcement around trade teams came in yeah it was june i think it was actually about four days before the national road champs which is really frustrating because then suddenly my phone's getting hounded by every journalist and that was a big race for me and you having to think on your feet of, of well obviously all your answers but actually what you're going to do next rather than actually focusing on big races upcoming yeah which was a massive curveball and we didn't expect it we didn't know where it'd come from why it'd come about so i mean that's where it really cemented the idea to go up to altitude and and to finish on a high and hopefully take a load of world records with us uh, yeah we were here and we did some awesome and we might have only been here for three seasons but yeah let's put a mark down um yeah our names in the history book so so just going back to to the decision obviously i understand that that the, the the trade team decision has been reversed but going back to the original decision you were given no explanation as to where it came from or sort of why it was made <laughs> I didn't even find out from the UCI it was the Times who rang me up for a quote and I was, no I was really dumbfounded like what what are you on about what about trade teams like no yeah. idea what 
surely you know about this no no idea and they're like oh we'll send you the press release we hadn't even been sent the press release in uci and they're like you were consulted with teams it's like well as it stands we're the I think we were the second most successful trade team behind Beat Cycling, who obviously have a, a well, massive load of support. And yeah, they're, they're a huge team. And they hadn't been consulted either. And you think, well, you can say you've consulted, but what have you actually done? Have you just like tapped on some random shoulder in the, in the track meet and asked some one-off question and claim that's consultancy it was yeah it was ridiculous really that they tried to just force it through what was the thought process behind it do you know at all do you still not know uh i have a few ideas i think it was kind of a few different aspects to it that uh, other nations weren't happy that we were effectively stealing qualification points or helping gb to qualify so there was a rumor going around as well that gb were funding us and that we were collecting the points for them. It's like, guys, you're so far off. Further from the truth. Yeah, you, you couldn't do any further from the truth. So there was that. I think, yeah, we upset a few other nations just by straight up beating them with a significantly smaller budget. Uh, and then all the Olympic qualification cycle that they wanted a clean qualification period, really, where they weren't having to separate out results from trade teams and non-trade teams and all that kind of stuff. So it's it a weird time and the moving of the calendar to align their world champs with the road world champs, world champs yeah suddenly meant you're racing in the middle of the summer and competing with the three grand tours and there were so many weird things that just didn't stack up when you looked at it but um that's often the way with uci when you look back through history some of their um some of their decisions are questionable at best pretty spectacular yeah i mean look just from a, from from an outsider's perspective it just seemed that what you did with the team brought so much interest and attention to track cycling far beyond its normal reach which is traditionally olympic year and obviously what what you've done from a aerodynamics perspective we've seen go from the track into the world tour on the road now like it's it's just seems nonsensical to remove that <laughs> remove that platform yeah it was it was head scratching at first and i mean in the end you kind of accept it and you push on and you think well what else will we do instead and uh, obviously we start making other plans of well, what can we do on the road and for example, yeah, stuff like the hour as well. Can we try and set some cool time or cool distances there? It's just, yeah, you just have to roll with it and sometimes accept that, yeah, you've been beaten by someone who has literally just basically decided they don't want to play ball anymore and gone off home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obviously, you took stock, you took the disappointment and then looked at the Bolivia trip, which was due for May. Is that right, originally? Yeah, yeah so it was okay. uh, late April, early May. I mean, the date was a bit fluid, just around um, all those of different things originally they uh they'd had an election it was the end of last year and uh, it'd been deemed fraudulent so they have having another election and they had labor day as well on the first of may so we're heavily warned be out of the country by the first of may or you're gonna have a hard time getting out so it's all like okay moving calendars around and whatever else and just trying to deal with the uci again where you you're suddenly not just a track team you're actually organizing an event you need commissaires you need officials you need anti-doping you need timing all the other stuff that goes with putting an event on let alone in a country i've never been to a language i don't speak um it was a bit of a nightmare to say the least but we've we've finally got everything all our ducks in a row and it was it was ready to roll and we were in uh we were at the top of mount tidy in tenerife actually on our third altitude camp and all was going well our numbers were pretty awesome we were pretty confident really of, of going there and coming back with at least one world record anyway it'd be nice to to have taken three and yeah it was uh just then the the corona stuff just hit obviously it'd been brewing over in, in china for i guess a good few months really and i think you just hope and believe that it, it just will come late enough that you can you can get over there and, and do what you need to do and it didn't really we got caught in the lockdown quite literally it was from one day to the next right Tenerife, Spain, all get knocked down. We got stuck at the top of the mountain. And it took us another yeah. six days to get out, really, till we could get on a flight. 
that's so frustrating given everything that's probably gone into it. And it was a it was a proper operation in terms of the world world records you're going to give a crack to. It was um, obviously the the team pursuit, individual pursuit, and, and the, the hour. hour record. Yeah. yeah. So we'd lined it all up. Um, it was quite a cool format as well. We were we'd done some interesting things that effectively I think everyone else as a race organizer normally wouldn't be able to do so we'd done it as a day on day off format so that people could recover between and not have to worry about the accumulative fatigue throughout competition we'd had it as well where we can decide the schedule we want to ride so what time of the day we could have random races on before so if you wanted like a massive bunch race before a race then that's not a problem at all and then you can decide who you want to race against as well so in the IP you could go right well you're going to ride probably a 406 and you're, you want to ride a 359 so you're going to ride against each other and you're going to have a nice juicy catch that you get all the aero benefits of that so it was just making sure that all our stars aligned really to make sure we just did everything we could to achieve some outrageous times yeah I didn't, I didn't quite appreciate on the team pursuit having you had two teams going didn't you yeah, that was another logistical nightmare. We knew that we had to have a second team and just trying to find a team that's just about quick enough. They're not, not particularly competitive against us, but they weren't ever going to get caught is the kind of target. And then asking them to commit four months of their life towards training to finish yeah, second. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but we, we got them. So we had, it was a mix of Aerolab ward wheels. Who, I think, were they bronze? They were bronze medal at national, maybe in like a 401, 402. Uh, so we'd taken a few of those guys uh, and a few of our other guys as well, put it all together and they were training at Derby in all of our sessions as well so originally they were called the B team but no one likes being called the B team so they picked up the nickname the Wildcats um, and they, yeah they Very were good. going really well and again just as it would have been cool just a, a load more guys that you're helping to, to make go fast and hopefully a bit of a catalyst for them in their career. yeah yeah and tell me is there an aerodynamic benefit of them being on the track as well yeah massively uh, which is the primary yeah. reason for them being there yeah that's yeah. what I thought yeah so if you look statistically at every team pursuit pretty much ever ridden in competition if you take the qualifying times and then take the rounds even if the in the rounds they're totally equally matched and they finish on the exact same time they tend to go about a second and a half quicker than they would do in qualifying and that's purely aerodynamic benefit it's not suddenly every team in the world decides to put more effort in for for the rounds yeah and then as you catch you get more and more benefit you can see uh, two seconds even two and a half seconds sometimes uh, with a really good catch so uh, you can see why it makes sense to take another team up and to be able to race against them yeah well very sadly obviously that had to be postponed I take it are you still looking to get it into the diary later this year or what's the plan (laughs) (laughs) I wish I knew Olivia Koshabamba especially has been hit pretty hard so we're in a bad way for multiple reasons so the yeah, well, Koshabamba's been hit, but also the velodrome accommodation block is their quarantine zone. So as it stands, yeah. that's their impromptu hospital. So until it's died down to any sort of normality, we can't even go to the velodrome there. Okay. So that's the biggest uh, roadblock as it stands. I mean, everything else is in place. We, we've got all the funds still there and obviously timekeepers and commissaires and whatever else they're keen to put the event on. It's just, yeah, being allowed to get to the country and being allowed to race. Yeah. So that's a, a wait and see, which is, mm-hmm. is difficult given your meticulous planning nature to have so much up in the air must be incredibly frustrating. It is because you can't plan beyond, or well, even now you can't plan week to week because every other race seems to be cancelled or moved, but it's you can't train towards an unknown date. It just is so annoying. And same with the other guys. Like we've, had, we've had to go to the four wins and we aren't in the team house at the moment because we don't have the budget to sustain that for another six nine months whatever it might be till we can go so it's uh everyone's back home doing their own thing for the time being and it's not the same constructive environment you get when you all live together and train together so yeah, it's just ideas 
Yeah, exactly that. So we're just hoping that, yeah, the stars align and we can get up there at some point. It might not be exactly what we'd originally hoped, but we'll give it a go. Cool. And just quickly before we move on to, to other bits and pieces, were were you documenting this trip as well? Was was James Paul doing, were you doing another film in terms of the journey to Bolivia? Yeah, we were. It was with a, a different videographer. So there's a guy called Ollie Hutton who follows it. Maybe late 2018 or 2019. So James has gone on to a load of other things. I think actually his wife is pregnant now. So congrats, James. Um, yeah, so he, he's off doing loads of other cool stuff. And I think it was a bit of a springboard for him, which is really cool. I think that's another thing we've always been about, that people who help us, it's nice to be able to help them on to, to bigger and better things and get them a ladder. Uh, so yeah, Ollie... Yeah. Uh, is Derby based and he's always been involved in Hoob and pretty keen cyclist himself too so uh, he said yeah I'm, I'm mad keen for this and he's gone out of his way to find all the, the funding to, to follow us and, and do it off his own back so it didn't come out of the team budget which was really cool of him and he's, yeah he got a whole lot of footage and so we're sitting there I guess waiting for the end to tie it all together oh, we'll get there I'm sure you'll get there for <laughs> sure but um, you'll have to give us all his everyone's details so we can put them in the show notes so people can find their work and stuff as well yeah I will definitely cool and obviously as as well as um, Who Bought Bike you've, you've got What Shop as well which is a business you set up a few years ago tell us a little bit about, about that and where, where you are with the consulting side at the moment as well so it was something I set up because I was doing a lot of, I guess, the things that I want or thought I could sell on to other people for myself. And you kind of, you, you need an income anyway when you're trying to be a cyclist and trying to sustain a full-time job's not easy alongside training. So, yeah, gone down the self-employment route. And, yeah, at first it's hard and you're trying to get a foothold within the industry. But alongside my career growing and obviously Team KGF and who what bike and, and Ribble on the road as well, it all sort of, yeah, fell in line and, and what shop's grown alongside all that. So, effectively, it's... Um, yeah, consultancy alongside sort of an e-commerce website. We do a lot of equipment development, both for who bought bike and Ribble, but also for the teams and nations and, and for the public as well. So extensions, crank set, um, lots of the cool little uh, bits and bobs that I guess other people don't think about, just trying to circumnavigate UCI regulations to get a yeah. bit narrow advantage well, here and there. This is where we should probably bring, bring Alex in as well, because Alex, you've been doing a couple of bits in this area, haven't you? This is an area of focus and interest to you. Uh, yeah, hi, hi guys, and thanks Dan for coming on. Yeah, I've done a bit of sort of custom modifications on cockpits and TT bikes. I would probably say I'm the Dan Bigham of our little uh, amateur TT squad <laughs> out here in, in Hong Kong. So I do the uh, spreadsheets and I do do a bit of CNC stuff for the other guys on their bikes, trying to make them a bit more aero. But now I've got to a stage where I'm making the other guys faster than me, so I've kind of taken a step back from that, setting in all the secrets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing on nothing on your nothing on your level of uh, what shop. Um, it's just a like when I get time, I'll, I'll do a bit. But yeah, it's super interesting stuff. I think that's a hard point that you brought up. Of you make your friends faster than you, and and how you deal with that mentally is is quite a hard thing. And I know I mean, a lot of people over the years have said like why do you do it? You, you could have just made yourself fast. And it's like, well, that's great, but you can't go and break Team Pursuit World Records and win World Cups as a, as a solo rider. You've, you've got to drag a load of, or three of the guys with you. And plus, it's fun, right? I, I like helping mates out. It's, it's good to see it when they go and, and get great results. And I guess I found a lot of uh, reward in helping other people achieve cool stuff. But it's, yeah, it's one that sometimes I think you mull over. Is this the right thing to, to help this person that much? They're going to go and beat me in, in a couple of weeks' time. That's, That's really important That's to it. Well, I mean, we, um, Jules and I spoke a lot about, I think, Team KGF and Boobwop Bike on a much earlier 
Unfound podcast, probably one of the first ones we did, um, where yeah, James yeah. was asking me a lot about aero stuff, and I'm I'm not an aero expert, but I do take a, a massive interest in it. And you know, we 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 sort of ride like amateur races, and we some of us can end up doing like the nationals out here in Hong Kong and stuff like that. So we do end up taking it quite seriously. And I would say that when you guys became you know big on the track with Team KGF in the first instance, uh, you 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 literally put down a marker for amateur TT riders, time trial enthusiasts, and and other national squads on how to position yourself on a TT bike on a track bike. And I'm sure you won't mind me saying this from engineer to engineer, but what you guys did in terms of starting with a clean slate on the track as a, as a trade team was, I mean, I, I hope you take this in the best way, but it was nothing particularly groundbreaking. And I, I'll quote you on this. There was a lot of low hanging fruit to be found on, on national teams, right? Because you had a, a systematic approach and you didn't have like a historical leash or a tradition leash. Um, and you went th- through things with a really fi- fine tooth comb and you found a lot of results very quickly. And now like the national squads can't just bomb around the track anymore. And I think if you look at the pro, the pro racing on the road, you do still get these real top end pros who are more traditionalist and they will ride the TT bike. But they just they just still don't embrace it, and then you you've got the guys who really relish being on the TT bike and they understand the watts and CDA balance and can do really well. And my question to you is is going back to the road bike side of it. And I know you're a, you're a, a track and t, like TT specialist or pursuit specialist. When I get off my TT bike and I well I almost look, put it like this I almost don't want to ride my road bike anymore. <laughs> and <laughs> Do you ever get that that same feeling if you've done a, you've done a long stint on the track, you've done a lot of training on the track or your TT bike? You get back on the road bike for the first time and you're just like, what the hell is this flawed machine? Because <laughs> for me, it doesn't support. Well, the UCI regulations and there's a lot of rules. Like for instance, in the in the, I think it's British cycling, isn't it? You're not allowed to put your forearms on the on on the tops of the bars. Yeah, yeah. Now that's that's understandable because without the support it can be a little bit dangerous you know if you're in a bunch and you hit a pothole or something but my point is the road bikes don't support a fast position the equipment just isn't supportive of a fast position whereas on the on the tt bike like, I'm, I'm actually thinking of selling my road bikes because i'd much <laughs> rather just ride i would much rather ride the tt bike everywhere and on the days off i'd just rather ride the mountain bikes it's more fun and i just have this frustration and it's I'm not going to bash the UCI because I'm sure you've done so much of that in your career, but it just seems like the road bike really is, yeah, it's a great all-round machine. It's good for going up and down hills, but if you're in a race and you're trying to break away off the front of a bunch, I've just never been in that position. Let me just let me just state that. It doesn't seem to really support a very fast aero position. Like, what what's your take on that? Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. I, I ride my TT bike everywhere. In fact, I've, I've come out to Denmark for a month and just bought my TT bike with me. Yeah, There's not, not a hill in sight. And I just think I like going fast. Like Some people are in the sport because they love sitting at cafes looking pretty with matching socks and helmet and whatever else. But That's me. me. <laughs> we always do, we do that as well. Do that as well. That's <laughs> uh, a, a good side of it. But I guess everyone enjoys the going fast bit and on a TT bike you just yeah. can't get away from it and it's the same on the track and then yeah you hop back on your road bike and like what is this thing it's like yeah. um, I won't call it a thing because yeah they're, they're, what we ride are bloody good bikes but relatively speaking yeah. it's just so much slower but then yeah. on the other hand yeah they're not designed in the way engineers would think well this isn't definitely far from the fastest way for me to be however yeah. that's probably an advantage of anything if you have that approach because yeah the rules are written for 
certain things to be as they are. However, if every other rider is doing it that way and you can read the rules a little bit different to your advantage, so you might go super narrow, stretched out within the regs, um, yeah. whether it's turning your hoods in, running a TT saddle, aero helmet, skin suits, just understanding aerodynamics in a road bike context, then suddenly you've got a massive advantage over everyone else who ignores it. Whereas trying to do that in the TT world now is just impossible because everyone's, everyone's doing so much... it. Yeah, exactly. I, I've got a bit of a question on that. I like to Alex's point, he mentioned obviously working with some of the, the road road guys who maybe haven't ever embraced the aerodynamics as much. Dan, has it been quite rewarding working with some of the biggest names on in, on the roadside uh, with, with Jumbo Visma? And have they been sort of quite welcoming to the ideas and and then i still find it surprising as alex mentioned you know i think a lot of what you've brought into the sport we've seen riders take into the world tour and then i look at like alaphilippe's time trial at the tour de france last year which he absolutely blitzed but he seemed in a really and i'm no expert it seemed in, in a really awkward position i don't it, it's kind of blows my mind a little bit what are, what are your views on that <laughs> i watched the uh the rio olympic time trial the men's uh a couple of days ago and just looking at cancellara like how yeah hands how down. <laughs> <laughs> just not even holding the end of the extensions it was it went around our group chat just like what went on here how did that happen i mean yeah his numbers were just outrageous that day um but it was yeah pretty scary although even looking back then you think some of the dialed guys aren't actually in the grand scheme of things all that dialed harrison um there's some things that Froome and, and Garin i definitely would have done on on them that i reckon could have moved them up and probably in Froome's case at least got them a silver medal but yeah i think some teams are definitely more progressive than others so i was really really lucky originally it was Kanye shram actually who jumped who got me involved first it was early 2018 they had a big campaign they wanted to smash the individual time trial and then take the, the world team time trial title because they'd won it many years prior but they'd gone something like first 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 second fourth fourth seventh or something they're like we want to reignite it and go out on a high as, as the best team time trial team in the world so they, they brought me on for that and that was such a rewarding process because they basically said look you've got free reign positions we're limited by i say limited actually in their case actually it's a big strength we've got all these partners and sponsors uh we can only use their kit obviously but actually in their scenario they're actually really good they've got Fast suits, fast wheels, fast tires, fast bikes. It was when you when you judge world tour teams, they're they're probably the best set up by by some margin. Um, and they say just crack on, whatever it is, whether it's team training camps, whether it's completely different approach to to change strategies, positions, whatever it might be, go for it. And that was really really cool. Uh, and then off the back of that, they put me in contact with Jumbo because Ronnie Lauka, who who runs Ken Shram, has a lot of friends over in Jumbo Visma. Um, so I went over and met Jumbo just about eighteen months ago now uh, over in Amsterdam and. Yeah, they were they were keen to get involved. Did some aero testing with originally it was with Walt Van Aert, so he did some stuff on the track in Outmar and then up altitude in Sierra Nevada, and then he Imagine. went on and yeah, did some outrageous time trials. Amazing things, right? Yeah, exactly. Time trial, and just you just missed out the fact there that that Canyon's ground won that team time trial. You very modestly, <laughs> but um, he he's made some incredible um, improvements to his time trialing, hasn't he? Yeah, it was not drastic changes actually. Um, a little bit in the stack and a bit in reach, but just making him aware of it I think is one of the major things because there's so many guys who come into it and they just see a TT bike as a road bike with some different handlebars on and it's not yeah. it's such a different way of riding it and even like within Ribble World Tide there's a few guys who are great road racers and this year Ribble said actually we, we need to be good time trialers as well if you we want to do well in things like Tour Britain so it's a big project we've got on to make sure everyone can time trial to a to basically a national top level and some of the guys just hop on and ride it like a road bike just with their arms together you're like no no <laughs> we need to have a talk here 
Yeah, but I mean, going back to, to Jumbo, they just they're keen to try new things. They're keen to do things a little bit different and they pushed a lot of their partners really hard. And I mean, they've been in a few email chains where they're like, no, we need this and this is why we need it. And they trust the numbers. I think there's a lot to be said for that because so much of world tour cycling anyway is, is old school dogma. Where we've always done this way, this way. And like Harry's told me some horrific stories of what, <laughs> what equipment he got given in, in Katusha with like, for example, they'd thoroughly clean brand new chains for time trials and not lubricate them because that's what they've always done. <laughs> And Harry literally wow. had to sneak a bottle of lubricant around the corner before his time trials. Yeah. It's so bizarre that this, this dogma, these sort of, I don't know, uh, traditions and stuff seem to hold. It's so frustrating for the sport, right? It just stops progression and development. And it's, it's so weird that even with all the science now, it's still happening. Yeah, uh, but it, then those who embrace it and those who really believe in it, they get the benefits, right? And that's how it should be. If Yeah, yeah, that's true. Here's a question to you both. The high hands position that, that obviously you have pioneered in the sport in some regard and bought in, is that a comfort position or is that is that an aerodynamic benefit or a comfort or a bit of both? Because it's finding the balance between all of those things, isn't it? It's multiple things, really, in a way. I think, personally, it's more comfortable anyway in the flat-hand position. But um, I guess each to their own. It depends a lot on your flexibility. On the whole, it's mostly aerodynamic-driven in that by a higher-hand position, kind of a few things can happen. Your head tends to be lower because your shoulders are more relaxed. You're more supported, so you can shrug down. I mean, lower-head positions are pretty much critical to TT performance, track and road. But the other thing is, as well, if you do a bit of trigonometry, by raising your hands, your elbows can go further forward, and you're basically a bit more stretched out within the UCI 80 centimetre or 85 if you're tall enough. Uh, so it's just another way of sort somewhat stretching out. Um, and when you stretch out, your shoulders tend to, to round in and also your uh, upper arm becomes slightly angled to the onset flow. So instead of being a cylinder, it becomes a bit more oval in cross-section, slightly more aerodynamic. There's small little details, but they all add up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For me, Jules, it's about to get seriously anorak, so you might want to cover your ears, Jules. But like, like Dan said, for me, it's well, more of a... It's more of an an uh, enabling position for the head rather than anything like fundamentally error about how the about how the air flows over the, the hands and the forearms. Yeah, it's more of a, a comfort thing. But I recently had a bit of a debate about this with quite another famous like online cycling independent YouTuber about the high hands position, and he took a picture of, of my position and basically said. Well, he picked holes in it, basically saying that the high hands position was all all conjecture. It wasn't actually faster because of some kind of flaky error principles he was banding around. And then when I thought about it more, I caught. It didn't. He didn't go into it too much. But when I thought about it more, and I did some did some of my own sort of thinking on it, I can kind of see a few situations where the high hands position could be considerably slower. And I wanted to pick Dan's brain on this, and that's for really short riders, particularly maybe female riders where because the the bicycle in the frontal area we all ride bikes with 622 or you know the same diameter wheels basically yeah yeah, yeah. 700 cc wheels and taller riders can't scale up the wheel linearly with their with their body or their frontal area and there's a potential i think for really short short riders if you look at the pros i'm thinking someone like jonathan castrovieco who literally has these extensions just above the front wheel and they are really benefiting from the front wheel aerodynamics whereas a taller rider like myself or anyone basically over six foot because of the biomechanical side and trying to keep the hip open and stuff we physically can't get that load to the front wheel and benefit off the positive pressure that comes off the front wheel and 
I would say on the on the bike, obviously Dan knows what I'm talking about, but Jules, you might not be so familiar. On the bike, we, we have these things called stagnation points where the, the free stream air is hitting first points of our frontal area. So for most riders, it tends to be the middle of the front wheel, the hands, and then somewhere on the center of the helmet. Now, if you're a really short rider and you can get your arms as low as possible to the front wheel, you might be able to get your your hands and some of your upper body inside that front wheel positive pressure or stagnation zone and we see well i've seen since you know dan and his teammates have done so well on the track and in tts and stuff that pretty much everyone has adopted the kind of semi-high hands or high hands position even shorter riders without much understanding they just do it like most things in cycling because the pros do it or it looks fast but i'm going to ask dan do you think it's a good position for absolutely everyone or should this idea of being lower to the front wheel if you can do it biomechanically should be explored and i know like it's it's funny because in my notes i had cancellara in my notes because he <laughs> famously had quite a low hands position but I, although he's a massive powerhouse then you've got guys like tony martin who's always had quite a low hands position he's quite a short guy actually and even cadell evans back in the day he wasn't the slouch on a tt bike but if you look at his position it's horrendous like for modern standards and do, do you think that this this front wheel aerodynamics thing is is something to be further explored because i i've got a theory it can be for myself i mean it's not feasible because i like you i tend to favor a much higher stack hardly any um drop from the saddle to the the elbow pads and i focus more on the sort of enabling the head and keeping the hip open rather than going super low but i think it's i think it's an area that could be explored with shorter riders in particular female riders yeah i think it, it depends on your concepts whether you are looking at that or just following the numbers and there's there's different i guess yeah schools of thoughts in that way personally i've always just gone down the route of well if it's if it's going to be quicker from the aero numbers and you can weigh up against your watts so i mean most of the time anyway if you're raising your stack up then you should be in a biomechanically more efficient position and more stable as well and hopefully more consistent in your <clears throat> in your position so yeah place of i think most of the time anyway i've gone down the route of as high as you can without sacrificing the arrow um, just looking for that tipping point and just going just inside of it really uh but yeah there's definitely an area f- well i think quite a few people actually do test very well with a low low hand position the more i think about it is probably quite often those with low stack height uh, so there's probably some some uh mileage in looking into that in a bit bit more detail it's it's really common actually people coming for arrow tests and saying i want to come out looking like this and they show, show your hands up and you're like but how about you say i want to come out 30 watts faster and i don't care what i look like is that a better, better answer and i think yeah. there's so much of the sport is just governed by style and looks and thinking that you're fast rather than actually just the numbers and it, it's something i've always laughed and joked about that i'll happily time trial in like a giant penis outfit i have no qualms whatsoever if it makes me faster <laughs> um yeah and it's exactly the same with position I, I don't care if i look stupid in whatever i do i mean how does a position look stupid because it just whatever people in the sport claim is is cool or not cool but just go with whatever's quickest because i guess standing on top of the podium is a whole lot cooler than finishing fourth sure <laughs> very true and in terms of how you look, I think there's a global shortage in POC helmets, aren't there? Don't you? <laughs> yeah, Dan, uh, we've, just, we've just had a whip round. We're opening the mould again. So you're in trouble. I believe they are actually opening the mould again. So they, uh, yeah, that's, that's my I, crowdfunding that done that. <laughs> I don't know why they didn't do it sooner, because they must have been absolutely inundated and hounded across social media well, for... Wow. Jules, one of our one of our good friends, Jules and I, is probably the most fantastic amateur, complete mental 
obsessive cyclist out there. He's, he's, he's a Thai guy, and he's just won like the Masters Thai IP. And he told me last week he he, he got on Instagram and DM Katie Archibald and offered her six hundred euros for a helmet. <laughs> her pock, yeah. Wow. True story that. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I think Johnny I think sold it no. at 700 plus. It was one on eBay for £1,000 a couple of weeks ago. It's ridiculous. Was there? Yeah. Oh, I bought them all up at about 120 quid, I think. Yeah, you've got them hidden away in a, in a warehouse in Derby, haven't you? you are, I'm very quite <laughs> low on stock now, actually. Over the years, we've sold really? them one here, one there, when you're like, oh, we need to get to that race. We need a bit more funding. <laughs> right, cash in right. Get a grand for them. Yeah, why not? <laughs> Mad. Um, why not? Very good. Look, I wanted to ask you about um, the work you've been doing with the Danish National Pursuit team as well and how that came about and where they're at. Obviously, Berlin was amazing earlier this year and, and where you think they might be able to get to come Tokyo 2021. And yeah, well, how, how, did the, how did that all, all come about? Well, uh, I guess it was off the back of, well, definitely was off the back of all the UCI changes back in June 2019 <laughs> when they said yeah. you can't race at World Cup level anymore. I was like, well, I still want to be involved at the highest level. I want to help people. I want to do cool stuff. And um, the Danes had always just been the nicest nation, full stop, at every single World Cup. I mean, we'd been through so much randomness of regulation changes, like the morning of the race and Harry forgetting seat posts and all that kind of stuff. And just every step of the way, the Danes have been keen to help out, keen to hold you for starts or lend you a hacksaw when you've got to cut 10 mil off your extensions because you see how I've changed what they want to do. But also just super interested in what we're doing, like quite often catch them peeping under under the covers of the bike uh, after we've gone back to the hotel, just stuff like that. So they've always been a good laugh and yeah, we always poke fun at them across the social media and stuff but a good group and yeah after after the regulation change i dropped them a message said look i can't race the highest level now by the looks of it so uh, i'm keen to to do something else in the sport do you have uh, any roles available be good to, to help you guys do something outrageous and yeah a couple of weeks later i was over in denmark had a meeting and we put it all in place basically that as soon as i or we as who what bike stopped racing against denmark I, I started so it was glasgow world cup in november uh, they beat us in the rounds dropped another 348 casually as you do and yeah that was the start of my contract really got stuck in really they went to, to Worlds it's been did something pretty outrageous 344 right yeah so yeah. 465 in quali 462 in rounds 446 I think it was in the final yeah it's just like a really really good team really progressive much like Canyon much like like Jumbo but I guess in some ways a bit more or definitely a lot smaller in that there's myself Casper van Folsak who used to be a rider he was uh, bronze in the team suit at Rio actually um, and he has uh, a few little health issues and many can't race anymore so he's getting fully involved in the R&D side he's another another nerd and then uh, Martin Toff Madsen who you guys might know from the time trial scene and our record scene he's just he's like 20 metres off cracking 54k at sea level which is pretty mad uh, and he's top 10 wow. the world individual time trial as well so uh, yeah he's a good guy and uh, his background is I think it was chemistry PhD and some mad stuff I can't remember exactly but yeah he's another really good nerd so between the three of us and we've got another another guy who's sort of part involved through um team denmark which is like their equivalent of the english institute of sport and a really good mechanic as well in mad so just we have full autonomy to do what we want within the budget to make the guys go fast and yeah, girls. i must be so gratifying <laughs> to see them come back with times like that and there's been such a change with regards to not only body position but also the the, the gears have got a lot bigger haven't they are you still finding low-hanging fruit or is the fruit getting harder and harder to identify it's 
yeah, it's definitely harder to to find the gains that that we were finding a few years ago. And like the maths originally when we started was barely beyond like probably not even GCSE, like borderline maybe AS level maths. And um, you'll know, Alex. It's just it's not complex. It's it's literally we can do it different ways, but on the whole, you can do it probably the easiest is by energy and you've got a power meter and a speed sensor and it's, it's super super simple but now it gets more and more complex when you're trying to pull apart actually what's happening at a component level so doing error testing isn't actually probably the hardest it's when you're trying to do really basically technically correct tire testing or drivetrain testing it becomes a lot harder to, to do well so yeah it's getting more complex but equally more enjoyable i quite like that being able to really dig into a problem, properly get your teeth stuck in, rather than just on the surface of like, this will probably be quicker and quick test and yeah, uh, there's a, a few percent, whereas now you're, you're fighting those little 0.1 percenters and it's a lot harder to achieve. Yeah, yeah, it becomes more challenging, I suppose. But the, the times we've seen on the track, the world records have just been falling left, right and centre, haven't they? It's been an incredible couple of years for, for track racing. Yeah, it's so interesting now, isn't it? It's like really reached a crescendo and Tokyo was ready, it was ripe, prime and <laughs> just yeah. to be pushed back 12 months. I mean, we did personally don't think we needed 12 months but it's, it's quite nice to have in a way you always find a way to spend that time but it was going to be a really interesting Olympic Olympics but now I guess even more so because in this next 12 months the amount of international competition is basically negligible I mean from the, the Danish calendar there's two European champs they're doing one in November and, and one in February and that's going to be it there's no World Cups no Nations Cups nothing so the Aussies and the Kiwis are down under probably beavering away hopefully or they'll be hopefully making gains and we're not going to see until tokyo so it's uh wow nothing nothing more till tokyo it's it's such a weird time for for sport in that regard isn't it yeah i think it's going to be the same across many sports though it's it's not just cycling obviously everyone's in the exact same boat and you you have loads of these kind of dipping your toes in the water at worlds or major competitions to be able to measure yourself against others and now suddenly gone everyone's coming in under the radar yeah it's mad isn't it mad and in terms of obviously you can't really say what's the plan is so were you going to be going out to Tokyo with the team for the Olympics that's uh, possibly I mean most of my role is done by then although there, there are a few bits here and there I mean I'd like to go irrespective of the opportunities there I'm not going to say no but hopefully by then I've um, all finished <laughs> yeah if, if I can get a ticket I'm there I'm 100% there yeah. there's actually some incredible cycling just outside of Tokyo as well so make sure you, you might want to take the road bike as well as the TT bike oh I definitely I'd be keen to check out the uh, the individual time trial and, and the road I mean, my girlfriend Josh, she's really keen to, to try and get in for the individual time trial for GB. So uh, I think it's gosh she gets there anyway, and then I buy my ticket. Yeah. Alec, I'll t- I cut you off earlier. Did you have any more more questions? Oh, I've got loads of questions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know Dan, Dan's got to rush off in uh, 10 or so minutes, right? So I'll keep it brief. Quick, just a really quick couple of questions. How much faster could have Ganner gone if he'd got his head down? <laughs> Some pool. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that guy is insane. I mean, anybody who can do 610 watts for four minutes is just yeah. something special uh, on a track as well. Is yeah, he's pretty wild. Can any of the Danish guys do that? Possibly, they're not far off. Looking at the numbers, we had this discussion actually at a test the other day of how quick could everyone go. And I mean, Lasser actually, Lasser Norman Hansen has the Danish record in 414. Point Nine 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 two, I think it is. He, he had the, he still has the Olympic record actually in the IP, and you just we laugh at him every session because his bike's got four fourteen on. You're like, you're not even getting top twenty at worlds with that. What are you on about? But I like, yeah, I think him or, or Frederick Rodenberg, they they've got potential to do something pretty outrageous in an IP, and they're quite tempted as well. They they don't really have many opportunities to pursue individually, so if they if they get a chance, I think they might jump at it. Sure. So back to the original question: <laughs> What time? Yeah. For Ghana? What 
if he got his head down, definitely a 59. It just, it, it, yeah, wow. just watching him, it, it's, I mean, it's cool, but it's equally frustrating in a way that yeah, you don't yeah, give yeah. the game away, but like, just, yeah, pull your head down, guy, and stop looking across the track to see how, how far ahead you are. Uh, but it's some uh, progression by him. He's gone from what? Four, he was like, barely cracking 420s like three or four years ago, and now he's knocking wow. out four ones for fun. Yeah, he would have uh, qualified, actually, for a second ride at Minsk World Cup in the team pursuit. Really? Yeah. <laughs> And a great ride by Aston as well, right? Yeah, that that actually was like the surprise ride. Everyone obviously expected Gamma to go out and win and do something outrageous. But Aston had done, you know, even gone some 410 at Minsk, which was back in November. So only, what, three, four months prior. And uh, he'd switched out his felt and his, his uh, US team kit. He'd got a Hoover Vortex skin suit on. And then, yeah, on the Argon 18 and Pentaxia cockpit and everything else, he'd gone all in and knocked off. It was seven and a half seconds, something like that. Six and a half, seven and a half seconds. Uh, it was just outrageous. Four three, wasn't it? Yeah, amazing. Yeah. So, so sub four, had you got to Bolivia? Oh, I was pretty confident of that one. Yeah. Um, really? The numbers stacked up yeah. to it. Yeah. It, it seems to be, anyway, give or take five to seven seconds, um, depending on the rider and how much aerobic power drop off and all that kind of stuff you have and how well your prep is. But Ashton was knocking out uh, 405 and 407 when he was doing... 4.10, 4.11 at sea level. So, yeah, he was finding five or six seconds. And if he's knocking 4.03 out then, so, yeah, he should have done it. He should have been mad. Wow, <laughs> absolutely mad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Alex, what, what, what other questions have you got? Um, what other questions have I got? A selfish question, if I may, right? If, if you've got a TTT train and you've got one one guy who's taller by about five inches than everyone else how do you optimize it <laughs> because i love riding the the itt if there's a team time trial in a, in our in our little race team i suffer like hell and the other guys who i could probably easily win over maybe on a normal itt they contribute definitely more than me in a ttt because basically i'm getting no sit off the back of anyone and i can't really contribute how do you how, how would you optimize that for for a taller rider in a in a train of like guys under six foot it's not an easy one in short inevitably you are going to have to do more work uh it might be getting you to spend less time at, at second wheel so you're not buffering so much because uh, that's the point where you're going to spend a load of your anaerobic tank just or probably sitting close to threshold before you do your turn anyway so if, if there's any way of getting possibly even the weaker rider ahead of you so you're sitting third wheel fourth wheel fifth wheel for longer and then you can fire through after effectively a shorter turn or maybe putting your turns in scenarios where you're getting more aero benefit uh so like the headwinds and stuff you're less likely to to be chucking out a load of gas second wheel you should get more draft might be a wise idea it's it's not an easy one um and yeah i've seen some of the problems in teams agiles and team pursuits before and you can try and balance positions up a little bit but a lot of it just comes down to trying to spend as much time as you can on the front as contributory and then everything else you just want to hide away as much as you can so it's that balancing act of staying out of the wind so if it means further back in the line for longer and just putting yourself probably in a position where you don't have to spend too much time at man two then uh, yeah you're probably better off there is a simpler solution <laughs> and that's to find some taller teammates for that yeah <laughs> yeah well there's <laughs> I'm a bit stuck at six foot five but there we are yeah yeah <laughs> but um... cool we should wrap it up because I know Dan's got to crack on ah, sorry Alex we, 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 do you have another question then no no I was just going to say to Dan I, I remember now last time I was speaking to Dan I think we are messaging on some form of social media we were, I was talking to him about a, a tyre testing rig for a, steer, a possible steering damper setup, and I've, I've I've got a few ideas since we spoke, so I'll, I'll try and get in touch with them again after <laughs> keep it secret oh definitely do yeah I'm always keen on uh, new ideas 
definitely excellent now dan's got a shoot off just quickly dan other than derby where's your favorite place in the world to ride oh i think sierra nevada to altitude really south of spain absolutely loved it just the altitude some really good roads good climbs snow quiet as well, right? weather oh so quiet Granada is a beautiful city as well, right? Oh, yeah. It was just fantastic being there, especially with the team. Just a good few weeks away, isolation, and just, yeah, some good fun. So, yeah, Sierra Nevada, I'll go with that. Look, we really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. And stay in touch. Let us know your plans, won't you? Oh, I definitely will. Thank you for having me as well. Always good to chat. Good man. Excellent. All right. All the very best, and we'll speak very soon. Speak soon. See you guys. Cheers, Dan. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast. And more importantly, don't forget to download the Unfound app and join cyclists from around the world on the hub. We'll see you on there.